Hey everybody, welcome to the Frogs War Podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. I am Melissa Trueblosser. And we're here tonight to talk a little bit about some things that are going on in the world of GCU athletics and some other things that are going on around the country. Um, but it would be we would be remiss if we didn't start with the big breaking news of Wednesday afternoon. Ross Blacklock, projected All-American, All-Big 12 player, defensive tackle, phenomenal athlete, out for the season because of an injury sustained in practice this week. It was a non-contact injury. Uh, this is a, is probably the biggest loss that TCU could have um, could have had to their defense this year, other than maybe Ben Vanigu. Um, Don't wish that upon and, us, please. And, yeah, if, I would say his name. If Vanigu goes, goes down, bad things bad things are going to happen. Um, so, anyways, uh, Melissa, what was your reaction when you heard about the Blaylock Blacklock news? Uh, um, I don't really feel like I can share that because this is a family show. It is a family um, show. But, yeah, you know, we, we've kind of heard some rumblings that this was potentially uh, something coming down the pipe and, and that we were aware of. And so um, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge loss for TCU. You really can't overstate it. And it's not often that you look at a defensive tackle as being that much of a game changer. But what Ross Blackhawk does in the middle of that defensive line is force people uh, to think twice about double teaming Ben Banigou. Um, it forces uh, people to, to think a lot about where they're going to put their the emphasis of their offensive line and their protection, mm-hmm. which completely changes what the TCU secondary looks like and how long we're asking them to hold up in pass pro so, or pass coverage. So um, he's a kid that, that looked like he was on the verge of having a really, really special season as, as an interior lineman for TCU. Uh, and, and just seeing him get hurt before he even had a chance to step foot on the field is, is just a real devastating loss. Um, you know, there, there's definitely talent that can step up in his place, but he's one of those kind of game-changing NFL-caliber players that you just don't see come along very often, and so it's it's hard to think about trying to replace him. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's exactly what TCU has to do right now is talk about who is going to step up in Ross Blacklock's place. Um, some people are saying that they can't see you anymore, by the way. Yeah, it's, I've gone away. Okay, yeah. well, you know what, folks? That's just not going to work for us tonight on Facebook Live. Can they hear me? I can't they hear can't me hear either. either. So we're just going to drop Facebook yeah. Live. Listen to this podcast tomorrow on iTunes. Really sorry. Tomorrow, iTunes, Podbean, wherever podcasts are heard, that's where we will be. So you can download it, listen to the podcast on Thursday morning or even late night on Friday night if you or Wednesday night if you stay up late enough. So this is the Frogs World War podcast. We're going to keep going, but without Facebook Live. So, 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 so sorry to all of you. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Melissa, TCU has to work a way around losing Ross Blacklock. They have to find guys that are going to step up. Fortunately, if you're going to lose a guy of Blacklock's stature, to do that at a time where depth seems to be at an all-time high, you know, I guess it could be worse. I mean, you've got guys like senior Joe Brodnack, who was a starter until Ross Blacklock came along, Mm -hmm. um, who will probably step up a little bit. The rumblings about how good Greg Ellis is have only gotten louder from from my understanding. Greg Ellis uh, is, is a redshirt freshman this year who is um, an incredible athlete. People were saying that he's at the same level as Blacklock and Corey Bethley. Uh, if he can come in and get right and step in and, and kind of start to fill those shoes of Blacklock as well, um, you know, then that, I mean, you can't replace him. But that's a guy that could step in. Yeah. And another guy who apparently has been stepping up this week 
already is Terrell Cooper, another redshirt freshman who is a big body who is capable maybe of stepping in uh, and and providing some uh, providing some talent and depth from that position as well. Realistically, though, this is just such a huge, huge, huge injury for TCU along the defensive line. We had talked all offseason about how this was potentially the best defensive line in the Gary Patterson era. Without Blacklock, that doesn't seem like it's going to be the case anymore. But realistically, Melissa, this doesn't just affect the defensive line. This affects the rest of the defense. So talk to me a little bit about how you see this affecting the secondary and the linebackers and, and just kind of the whole defensive scheme. Well, like you said, it completely changes everything. And, and one of the things that we were counting on with this young, inexperienced secondary was having a defensive line that was not going to leave a whole lot of time for those guys to need to hold up in coverage. And so when you take some of that pressure off, and, and you know, I think you're absolutely right in mentioning Corey Bethley and, and Cooper and Ellis and all those guys, um, people that, that Patterson was talking very highly of before this injury occurred. And so it's not like he's just saying, well, now we're going to have to build these guys up. He was he really believed in them last year and, and talked, uh, you know, in media availability before report day about how they could have played. Um, he, he thought about pulling their red shirt at one point due to kind of other guys being dinged up and that they didn't miss a beat in practice when they were running with the first and second team. So um, the pieces are there. But when you look at, you know, what the, the question marks in the secondary at corner, um, at safety, you've got new guys coming in all over the field back in the back end of the defense. Um, and now you're, you're going to need them to hold up maybe a little bit longer an extra second, second and a half in, in places like the Big 12 and offenses that are going to face week in and week out, that is a huge, huge difference for a team to have to, to hold on for just a little bit longer uh, in the coverage on the back of the defense. Um, and the other thing, too, that it impacts is, you know, one of the things Patterson talked about so much was how much that rotation, how important the rotation of his defensive lineman is. Uh, because you're playing 60-plus plays, you're playing a lot of no huddle, being able to get guys in and out super quick yeah. is, is a huge advantage. And when you lose one player, that impacts everything. Um, ben Banigou is going to be hurt by this. I think this also could mean, um, you know, we see more of Ty Summers at defensive end uh, to get some of that speed back. We start talking about moving some other pieces around, uh, which impacts the linebacking unit because now they don't have the depth. Uh, now, now you're asking maybe a Montrell Wilson or an Alec Dunham or, uh, or sorry, a Rico Evans, not Alec Dunham or, um, you know, whoever else to step into that role and, and maybe play 30 to 40 snaps a game when they were only going to be playing 15 to 20. So uh, it's, it's kind of in stages. It, it does impact every single level of the defense. And, and that also impacts the mm-hmm. offense, too, when you look at the field position game. Because when you have a guy like Ross Blacklock who can really step the run, who can close some of those gaps um, and can put teams in second <clears throat> long and third and long situations, now you're looking at, you know, extending drives or, or different field position than you might have otherwise. Yeah, and that's the big thing, too, is, like, the the improvement from 2016 to 2017 uh, for TCU's defense against the run, where they only last year allowed eight rushing touchdowns all season. Uh, I think they were, like, top five, top six teams in the country against the run last year defensively as far as yarded, yards, yards given up. Um, you know, losing him impacts so many different aspects of the defense. And like you said, it does also impact the offense. And not only from a field position standpoint, but realistically, this was one of those seasons where, you know, the defense was going to have to probably carry this team through the first okay. few games while the offense got its legs under it. You're talking about replacing all of these offensive linemen. You're talking about trying to get a new quarterback up to speed who we don't know who that is yet. 
And so you're talking about an opportunity for a defense to step up and keep things close for an offense that may come out of the gate a little sloppy this year. Now there's, yeah, there's and, and I don't think it needs error because you've lost a guy of black sure. loss nature. And we don't want to be all doom and gloom. Um, you know, this isn't one of those injuries where you go, well, might as well toss in the towel on the season. Um, it's, it's an interior lineman. It's a really, really good player. It's, it's an NFL caliber player in the middle of the line. You don't just cycle through to another guy, but uh, like we've been saying, this is the deepest group of talent, uh, that, that Gary Patterson has had. There are other players on the defensive line that can step in and can, and can give you most of what Ross Blacklock can give you. And so while it's an absolutely just a brutal injury to suffer at this point in the year, uh, it's not something that makes me go, well, now all of a sudden TC is going to be lucky to be eligible for a bowl. It just means that somebody else is going to have to fill those shoes. And thankfully with the way that TC has been recruiting and, you know, that's Zarnell Fitch has, has really coached those guys up and, and gotten a lot out of them. Um, I, I just think the defensive side of the ball will find a way to patchwork it together and make it work. Maybe not as dynamic as they were going to be going into the mm-hmm. season, but still a really, really effective unit that can wreak havoc. Um, if yeah, they need absolutely. To. I mean, Ben Banigou is still going to get his. I don't, I don't see this as affecting Ben Banigou too much because I expected a lot from LJ Collier on the other side of the line. Um, but realistically, mm-hmm. as far as running defense up the middle, that's going to be something that TC has to pay attention to is how are these guys who are stepping in in place of black block defending the run, filling gaps, allowing linebackers yeah. to get in and, and stick their nose in there. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, we'll have to pay attention to, especially throughout the rest of fall practice to see who steps up. And then in, in those first couple of weeks against Southern and SMU to see, you know, what's what's the game plan now that this guy, uh, a, a guy of Blacklock's caliber is out. But that's not the only Well, thing. And, and here's the what's good that? news. What's the good well, I was going to say one last thing. The good news is, is Ross Blacklock, 6'4", 329, freak. Like, the kid is an athletic freak. But Corey Bethley, 290. Joe Broadnax, 294. George Ellis, 304. Terrell Cooper, 286. Ezra Tuua, 316. So there's still – it's not like it was, you know, even just two or three years ago where you're putting in a guy who's, you know, 237, right. which is what uh, Isaiah Katonga is, but he probably won't be playing this year. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that there is, at least from a size standpoint, they're not going to move the way Ross Blacklock moves cause, because the kid is just – he's just a marvel. Um, mm-hmm. But they can still – there's people that can step in and fill space right away and be really, really effective. And so uh, it's it's that opportunity. The one thing that I've heard Patterson say time and time again, um, the three times we've gotten to hear him speak so far in preseason camp, is uh, that, you know, every time someone's missed a practice or been a little bit nicked up or dinged up or needed a veteran's day or whatever it was, it's just given an opportunity for somebody else to to show up and to show mm-hmm. out. And because of the caliber of player that Patterson has had a chance to recruit the last couple of years, when those true freshmen or those redshirt freshmen step on the field, it's not like, you know, it, it used to be where you're like, ooh, this, this kid's not quite ready for prime time. It's, oh, wait, th- this guy can do this or this guy really has proven that he belongs. And, um, you know, it, it forces you to make some decisions that maybe you didn't quite want to make. But at the same time, now you have guys stepping into that role that, can be effective and that, that Patterson believes can play if they need to every Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we got a question, too, that I think we should address here on Twitter a little while ago, uh, asking about Blacklock and the potential for a medical redshirt. Um, yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, he hasn't played it down and with, uh, in, you know, this season. So, like, there is absolutely potential for a medical redshirt. Will a guy of his caliber go for that? I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure. No. Probably not. Um, <laughs> I think – 
Yeah, he, he may apply for one, but even if he is granted a medical redshirt, I don't see any way that Ross Blacklock is on the TCU campus for, for five uh, years, no, six there's, years. There's I, I, I think we've got one more year, yeah. especially after suffering an injury like that. Um, you know, you're looking at a guy that's probably going to be in the top. He's going to be a day one, day two NFL draft pick here whenever, if he has another season next year. Um, you know, building on what he did a year ago. I, I just, I don't see any way that, that we have one, more than one, maybe two seasons of seeing him actually on the field. But I, I think, I think we just better appreciate it when he does come back because it's not going to be. Yeah, very I long. agree with that. You know, I think the only NFL player that I can think of that took a medical red shirt and stayed in college for an extended period of time post medical red shirt was Case Keenum. And, you know, he was in college for like six years at Houston. So. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it worked out for him, but it doesn't work out for everyone. And these guys have to realize too that financially, uh, you know, their bodies are only going to hang up, hold up for so long, mm -hmm. and you've got to take advantage of it while you can. So an injury like this, yeah. yeah. And he's he's a DT, like he's getting his head, right. exactly. and he is and, helmet every single and, play. He's and on realistically, the, field. the NFL is so far behind other professional sports or professional leagues just in how much money is guaranteed. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, realistically yeah. for a football player to stay in school, uh, it just doesn't make quite as much sense. Whereas like a basketball yeah. player like Kenrich, uh, you know, could get hurt and have that ACL tear and then come back and work his way back for several seasons. Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to see that very often on the college, on the football side of things. No. As, as far as I'm concerned, as TCU fans, um, and having talked to Ross Blacklock um, and, and had a chance to, to interview him, I know we both got that mm -hmm. opportunity. Like this kid he's is good, just eminently likable. A good, kid. good dude. And and so as TCU fans, we need to say, Ross, go get healthy, take care of yourself, and then give us one more year to prove yourself. And we, we need to hope that he does have the opportunity to leave because he just plays that well. Um and, and I think Patterson would say the same mm -hmm. thing. You get these special players, you know, Gary's job is is to give them their best opportunities, whether that's academically, whether that's the connections that they make whether that's playing pro football and, and this kid has the talent and, and the, the ability and the athleticism. I, I hope that he's so good when he does step back on the field in 2019, that we're all from game three. We're like, well, might as well enjoy this because it's the end of the road for us yeah. and Ross. So very easy to root for devastating. Hated to hear it. Um, just from, again, I just like the kids so much as a person, uh, you know, alone alongside of what he can do on a football field. So just a super bummer mm -hmm. of an injury. Yeah. I mean, it's just tough all the way around. It's just tough. Um, but that's not the only thing that we have to look to, to, like, you know, keep us down for the TCU football season. There's a lot to look forward to still. You know, it is August. Well, by the time most people are listening to this, it'll be August 16th or 17th. But right now it's August 15th. And we still don't know who the starting quarterback is on this offense. I think if you had asked 95 I mean, do we? Do we really know? I think we know. Because I don't I think, think we know. so. I think they're really, I think they're, you know, Michael Collins, what happens, Melissa, if Michael Collins actually wins this job? Do you think that's actually a possibility? Do you really think that they would be? I'm not going to say it's it. Do you really think that they would be holding it so close to the vest if Sean well, hadn't Gary, distanced a little bit? Jamie, Jamie, where have you been the last three quarterback battles? <laughs> this is not unfamiliar territory for TCU when we're looking at a new quarterback. Other than Kenny Hill's two years, you know, you can go back to Andy Dalton, and there were people saying he wasn't going to be the starter. You go back to Trayvon Boykin, you know, Matt Jokel Matt, was going to be Jackson the starter. started in a couple of those seasons. 
Yeah, well, yeah, he did. Like uh, the first five, four or five and, games. And, and, yeah, Marcus Jackson started games. He split time with Dalton at quarterback that year. We really didn't know who the, I, who the full time I... starting quarterback was going to be until halfway through that season. And with Boykin and Jokel, they didn't announce until Kenny Hill ran out onto the field, and they said by all accounts that it was incredibly close. And if Jokel doesn't tear his ACL that season in the in the second whatever the SMU game, I think it was that year then who knows if he gets on the field once Kenny starts falling apart like he did. Or, or sorry, Trevon. Yeah, sorry. Trayvon. I'm, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. You know what I meant. Yeah, I know. And, but, but I think... But realistically, I mean, but, like, but, if Michael Collins is in, in here and he's doing everything that he's supposed to be doing and he's pushing Sean Robinson not only to create a better starting quarterback in Sean Robinson, but maybe to create potentially a better starting quarterback out of Michael Collins... You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant now, and I, I wasn't hesitant the last two times this was the case. I, I knew that it was going to be Dalton eventually. I knew that it was going to be Boykin eventually, but I'm just not so sure right now. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two reasons why I believe it's not as much of a competition anymore as, as it was maybe in the spring. Uh, well, and number one is, is Patterson has said a couple of times, you don't realize how close it was, not how close it is, but how close it was. That's, that's my third okay. bonus point. But number one, um, Patterson told us what we needed to know about the offensive line and about Sean Robinson when he said um, last Saturday he's got a little – he's got kind of basically said he's got a little bit more escapability, the, a little bit more opportunity to make something out of nothing. So that That's reason one why I think it's Sean Robinson. Reason two, um, when when Drew Davison of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram asked him for some specifics about the battle, what does each one do well, what does each one do poorly, Patterson very bluntly said, I can't tell you without telling Texas and Ohio State, and I don't remember who the third team he was. And so uh, Patterson keeping something close to the vest and an air of mystery about his football program is nothing new. It is it's an off-season tradition at TCU. And I, I think that this Sean Robinson is the perfect fit for – Sonny Cumbie's offense, and unless he's been a disaster, and there's nothing to make us believe that he has been, I think it's it's his job. And, and Michael Collins is is been a great influence and a great great competitor, but he's he's the number two, and it's Sean Robinson's job at this point. As long as he doesn't come out and throw you know ten interceptions in the first three games, it's probably his job this year. Well, obviously that's an exaggeration. I think if he throws ten interceptions, you know. He'll, he'll be pulled long before that, Melissa. Come on now. <laughs> More you know, than I likely, just, yes. I, I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, yes, obviously Patterson loves to keep things close to the vest. He loves to be incredibly protective of information surrounding his football team. I, don't, I, just, I have a different feeling about it this year than I've had in years past, and I can't explain that. Well, and that being said, and all that being said, I do think if Michael Collins wins this job – then it's not one of those things where we need to be worried that Sean Robinson didn't. It's that we can sit back and be impressed that Michael oh, Collins 100%. did. Um, he's a lot, yeah, he's a lot more athletic. People give him credit for. He's probably a more accurate passer at this stage in his career than Sean Robinson. He doesn't have that amazing arm and the ability, you know, to throw those twenty-yard out routes. Robinson just has a he just has mm-hmm. a cannon. I mean, the kid can throw anything. Um, and and if that ends up being the case, and we kind of look at it, is Michael Collins is going to be a steady quarterback? I, I don't know if he's the kind of guy that that can do what Sean Robinson can do, can do what Trayvon Boykin can do, and, and even to some degree what Kenny Hill did last year, where they take a bad situation and will their team to victory just by being really, really hard to defend as a quarterback. But uh, he's a really steady guy. He's probably more Andy Dalton than anybody would be my guess, but obviously not as accomplished as, as Andy is. 
um, at this stage in sure. his career. So, uh, he, he, and, and if that's the case, the one thing I will say, if Michael Collins is the quarterback in 2018, then I just about guarantee Justin Rogers is in 2019 without a doubt. So maybe, maybe that's what it ends up being, but I still expect to see both guys in game one and Sean Robinson every snap after that until garbage time. If we're lucky enough to have it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's the plan, I think, but we'll see. We'll see how that actually manifests itself. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying that I expect Michael Collins to be the starter by any stretch of the imagination either, but you know, I think if it's actually as close as they're saying it is, then we might not know until September 1st. Yeah. And, and, you know, well, shoot, we may not know till September That's 7th true too. or 8th or whatever the, whenever that game is 7th. Yeah. Yeah. The SMU. Yeah. It's Friday night game. Yeah. In Dallas. Gosh, prime time. In Dallas. For classic rivalry. Texas high school football game. I mean, that's classic rivalry in college. Yes. What was it? <laughs> who was it? Was it Sonny Dykes that came out as the as the one who said that they're the real Friday Night Lights, or was that just SMU's like marketing campaign? I think that was Chad Morris did that oh, okay. a year ago, and it backfired yeah, a, little a little bit. bit. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. It's a little ridiculous. But moving right along uh, to other schools who think less, th- who think really little of TCU, um, that would be Ohio State, TCU's third game of the season. Uh, <laughs> we can't get out of this episode of the podcast without talking about what one Ohio State fan uh, did on Twitter this week, uh, Mr. Ohio uh, on Twitter, uh, with a one as the I, because Mr. Ohio, if you just search that on, on Twitter, there are thousands of people with that incredibly yes. original and unique uh who who would know that many people would want to want people to know they were from Ohio? Like that's really the amazing it part is of all a swing of this. State, Melissa. It is state. True. Their True. vote. Their vote. How's that matters. working out? <laughs> their vote matters. But we're not a we're not a political podcast here. We are a TCU football we podcast, and so Ohio State, Mister Ohio, uh, went and did some things on Twitter to get the TCU fan base riled up a little bit this this week. Uh, most uh, significantly, talking. Uh, and, and kind of reusing some of the same lines that we've heard used over and over and over and over mm-hmm. and over and over about big name teams. To the detriment. Big blue blood, blue chip programs talking about playing little old TCU. Now TCU is going to get mm-hmm. out athleted. They can't recruit at the same level. And so uh, Ohio State's more talented. TCU's defense plays in the Big 12. So how good are they really? Or Ohio State's just going to yeah. run the ball down their throat and coast. Um, at one point, <clears throat> he he said something along the lines of, you know, uh, TCU's offensive line won't be able to hold up against Nick Bosa and the rest of their four-man front, and so they'll drop eight with their four-man front. And I really <laughs> did appreciate your reply there to say, yeah, if you have 12 men on the field, you're probably going to win the game. Yeah. Hey, but just remember this though too. They didn't come to Ohio State to play no That's school. True. Well, Cardell's turned on that. He's turned around, I think, a little bit. But uh, you know, that yeah. being said, still. Um, yeah, it, it was. You know, it, it, has these teams not learned anything from watching TCU and Texas play the last four uh, years? Well, because I'm pretty sure that Texas is recruited at a pretty high level, probably in the neighborhood of what Ohio State is recruited, or at least you know, in the top ten classes, top fifteen classes annually. Hasn't seemed to really matter all that much. You know, realistically, I, I think that Texas and Ohio State are 
different, just in different places as programs. I mean, they are both kind of these blue, blue chip sure. premier well, yeah. programs. Uh, Ohio State, at least recently, has had vastly superior head coaching as far as being able to coach people on the yeah. field. We talked last week at Dutch's about the off the field issues that are happening at Ohio State right now and expressed our opinions. Sorry to everyone that that podcast didn't make its way onto iTunes. The audio was total crap. Um, and so that was a bummer. But, you know, I think that it's, it's so easy because TCU doesn't have that same respect for fan bases who don't really know any better to start to critique TCU, uh, in, in a similar fashion to those that have critiqued TCU in the past. Because it's one of those things, if you don't know uh, the history, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. You know, if an Ohio State fan would reach out to a Wisconsin fan and start talking about TCU this way, I'm sure that Wisconsin fan would say, now hold on a second. If that Ohio State fan would reach out and talk to an Arkansas fan from last season, they would say, now hold on a second. It's not just easy enough. It's just not easy to run the football down TCU's throat. And if you're not careful, they're actually going to run it down yours. You know, and... I, I do want to make a point, though, that I, I've interacted with several Wisconsin fans, and that's actually not the case. They think it was an anomaly, and they blame the coaching. It wasn't that TCU oh. went out and beat them. It was that their coach mishandled the game. And thank God he's gone because Paul Chris is the truth. I, that's literally something I've heard no, a Wisconsin fan oh, say Chris. recently. So they don't. that's the thing. Is at the end of the day, TCU is never going to have the respect of those programs until they make the playoffs. And it's completely unfair. And it, it's, but they, like, I had Ohio State fans reaching out to me on Twitter. So what can you tell me about Ross Blacklock? Does this injury matter? Like, they don't know who Ben Banigou is, you know? Like, they have, they maybe knew who Trayvon Boykin was, but at the end of the day, like, we're still in that uphill battle of having to prove to these schools who have, you know, have top 10, top five recruiting classes, have made the playoffs, have won national championships in the last, you know, decade still don't believe that TCU deserves a seat at the table. And it's because they simply have had no reason to educate themselves. And I think in order to get them to that point, TCU's going to have to make the playoffs. Do you think that's the only thing? Like, or that's, do you I think mean, that's even enough? Yeah. Like, do you think? I, I think if they make it, and even if they don't win, if they belong. Because I think that's what, what happened for Oklahoma last year. I think Oklahoma already had that level I think it made a huge difference. Oh, I, I disagree. In oh. talking to people outside of the conference, people in the Midwest, people in the South know Oklahoma. But if you go up to a Big Ten or an ACC team before last year, I mean, they're, Oklahoma is a national program to a degree, but they aren't a brand name the way even that Texas no, is. No, and we had this conversation last week, too, at, at, at Dutch's. You know, Parker and I were talking about this because he wanted to make the argument that from a branding perspective – uh, and from a strength perspective, uh, what e- what Ian Boyd was arguing about Texas being down, meaning that the entire Big 12 was down, is actually kind of legit. Um, and so I posed the question. I said, "Is it? does that mean then that Texas is a larger brand than Oklahoma? And he said yes, and I agree with that. I do think that Texas is a bigger brand than Oklahoma. Uh, but realistically, I think we're starting to bury the lead here a little bit. Uh, but I, I think ultimately what's going to put TCU at, at – name brand recognition level of some of these other schools is not only making the playoff because I think you can make excuses year over year about what schools make the playoff and what don't. I mean, we've seen that done in the, in the five years that there has been a a college football playoff, right? Like we've made excuses for TCU not making the playoff already. I I think the only thing 
that will get get this get these questions out of the mouths of other fan bases is actually winning a national championship and running through a gauntlet of blue bloods to do it. Because if you, if any if any other situation yeah. takes place, right? Like if it's a it's a weird football season and it's like TCU and Virginia Tech and Washington and Auburn in the college football playoff and TCU wins it, everyone's going to say, oh, well, they didn't have to play Bama. They didn't have to play Ohio State. They didn't have to play Oregon or Stanford or USC. They didn't have to play Florida State, right? Like they're going to list all of these other teams that TCU didn't have to play in in that sure. in any given year. And that's still going to keep, keep the Frogs from reaching that level of, uh, of, of name brand, of, of, of being a name brand school. So what I hear you saying is that had we not gotten screwed over in 2014 by this Ohio State program, all those questions would have been answered and we'd be flying high, happy as can be, I think pretty much. I think we've misassigned our rage to Ohio State in that instance. Ohio State didn't do anything other than lose to Virginia Tech and then beat the living tar out of yeah. whoever it was they played in the Big Ten. Was that Wisconsin? Was that the year they won, like, 55 to nothing? It was, 59 to nothing. I, I mean, we have, nothing, we have yeah. Jeff Long. To yeah, no, and it's, it's not Ohio State's. Yeah, it's not Ohio State's fault. What I hated and what I've, and it's the same thing that we're dealing with now is how the Ohio State fans were so adamant that TCU didn't belong when honestly it was a toss up between the two programs. And I don't think that TCU would have done anything to not look like they deserved the spot had they been given that Mm -hmm. opportunity. Ohio State was playing great football. No question about it. But just because Ohio State was playing great football doesn't mean that TCU wasn't. And that's, I think, the, the thing that bothers me more than anything about the way Ohio State I, treated that. I they got lucky. That they got lucky. I also. <laughs> they got lucky that their jersey also, is what it I is. I also am of the opinion that Florida State, even though they were undefeated, was the team that should have been left out. Yeah, they were trash. Like, they they yeah, were trash they were all trash. year. And that's that whole blue They were trash blood all year, thing. but they hadn't lost a game, right? Yeah. So, like, how can you penalize a team that hasn't lost a game yeah. even if they've looked like garbage going undefeated? Uh. Ask UCS. Well, that's that's a completely different scenario. That's a completely different situation. Yeah, it is. If but it's the same thing. You're still punishing a team that looked better against what was probably almost a stronger conference, or at least as equally as good of a conference as the ACC was that year, and punishing them not for not losing a game, but for not having the right opponents to play. And that that to me is just as bad as is putting in a team just because they didn't lose doesn't mean that they were one of the best four teams in the country. And just the same thing, just because they didn't, they didn't, just because they played a bad conference doesn't mean they were, they weren't, you know, one of the best yeah. four teams in the country. So it's a mess. We need to go to eight. That's what it comes down to. Make it eight, fix all these problems. I, no, I totally agree. I think most coaches agree at this point that it needs to be eight. Yeah. It needs to be eight. But, uh, you know, we've, we've, gone down the rabbit hole now and we've started revisiting 2014 which no TC, uh, every actual TC fan has probably checked out at this point because of that so let's move right along yep. to some yep. actually good news and some fun stuff that's going to come up in 2019 that is uh, related to baseball so uh, as we know TCU has played in the Shriners College Classic down in Houston, Texas uh, for like four out of the last seven years or something like that at this point they've been down there quite yeah. a few times uh, normally playing uh, big SEC schools or uh, some kind of nationally known uh, schools, which has been pretty fun as a TCU fan to be able to just to drive down to Houston for a weekend and see the Frogs playing all of these, all of these other uh, really good baseball teams. It's happening again. 
in 2019, and, and the lineup is pretty cool because it's all TC or it's all Texas schools that are playing in the Shriners Classic in 2019. Uh, TCU will be playing Rice, which you know is uh, a historically really strong baseball program. Houston, which is an up and coming pretty good baseball program, and a baseball program that TCU has humbled significantly. In Texas A&M. Uh, 7 o'clock on Saturday night, March 2nd, 2019, TCU and Texas A&M will take the field at Minute Maid Park. And I'm so pumped. Oh, I'm super be- fired up. It, it's a great venue. Yeah, I will be there as well. Uh, maybe not for the Friday game, mm-hmm. but definitely for, for Saturday and hopefully Sunday. Uh, or the Texas A&M game could be from Saturday until Sunday if we and it passes any uh, any indication of what to look forward to. Um, but yeah, it, it's a great venue. It's a great event for a good cause. Um, it's it's one of those things where even though it's a pro stadium, it feels very collegial because of how many fans travel and having every single team be a Texas team and within about a three hour mm-hmm. to four hour drive from the stadium should make for just an outstanding environment. Um, the Aggie fans are the worst, um, but there's something that you have to see. It's it's definitely a, a good experience, and they're better than the LSU oh, fans, sure. in my opinion, as far as people. So, yeah, so that's okay. Um, it's it's a really fun environment. Everyone seems to get along and, and enjoy just kind of the atmosphere. And, man, it's a good bang for your buck, too. You get to see a lot of good baseball over the course of those three days, and it's relatively inexpensive um, as far as tickets go. And so 100% worth being there for. It's, I'm so happy to see you. Yeah, back it's going to be field. really cool. And I think that the Shriners Classic probably is, too. I think not having TCU last year hurt them, and they realized that that's a, just a good place yeah, to be. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, you're talking about, yeah, Baylor and Texas State and Texas A&M, Houston Rice and TCU all being within just like a not a terrible drive at all. Uh, I mean, realistically, TCU is the furthest yeah. away of all of those schools, and it's four hours on a good day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is always like my favorite tournament that TCU plays in every year other than the actual postseason just because it's a showcase in the state of Texas in a place where you know TCU's brand needs to expand a little bit for recruiting purposes not only for baseball's sake but for football and for basketball and just for the university's sake because that area of Texas has long been dominated by UT and Texas A&M that it's always great to have the purple the the TCU brand down in that area of, of the state. And so, and, Absolutely. and, you know, Absolutely. we're looking at a, at a TCU baseball team that's got, uh, maybe a little chip on its shoulder now with the way things finished in 2017, where, uh, they just were up and down all year. They made it somehow to the Big 12 championship game in the, in the postseason tournament, uh, and lost in that way to Baylor. Uh, you know, I think this team's going to come out and want to prove to folks that that wasn't just, a four-year run or a, or a five-out-of-seven-year run for TCU making it to College World Series, but that this is a dominant team, this is a dominant program that's going to last for a little bit longer. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's there's a lot of reason to be excited about the makeup of this team. Um, you know, obviously, you lose some really big bats and some super talented players when, with Luke and Baker and Sean Weimer and, and some of the others, but Josh Watson comes back for his senior season to, to really lead the offense. And there's some really exciting pieces around him. Um, when you look at what Johnny Reiser can do, if he can stay healthy um, with mm-hmm. Alex Oviedo uh, and, and what he started to do towards the end of the season um, and the pitching staff. When, when Jared Janzik made the decision to come back, if he's healthy and he's right, 
this pitching staff with him and Lodolo and some of these young arms that, that are, you know, with mm-hmm. what we saw at Eisler and Halen Green at the end of last season where both of those guys almost threw no hitters, um, you know, like back-to-back weeks. Uh, there's This is a, a really, really talented pitching staff that should be kind of have grown into bigger roles and the readiness to take on bigger roles. So there's we're replacing some some really good guys. You know, Durbin Feltman just got his first save of, of his career in high A. A couple of days ago, I don't know where we look to to see who the next hit, who that's going to be. But you know, Augie Milbauer looks like he could be that same mm-hmm. kind of fiery personality. So uh, I think that a lot of people towards the end of last season kind of jumped off the CC baseball bandwagon, but that's a mistake. Um, like you said, they're trying to prove that they are a program, and I think that the talent, the way they've recruited, and the way they kept that coaching staff together, this is this was a blip in the radar. Not you're not going to be great every single year, but we could see another special run here over the next two to three to, to potentially even longer than that years. Um, and I'm excited to see uh, fall balls getting ready to start off. I'm excited to see what we hear coming out of uh, fall camp and, and what these Absolutely. guys can do. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm looking forward to that weekend in Houston. I'm looking forward to the big 12 schedule. Uh, TCU baseball is one of my favorite seasons of the year. And so just to be able to watch those guys try and redeem themselves after a bad 2017, uh, just like TCU football redeemed themselves after a bad 2016, uh, it's always fun to see how quickly a TCU program can bounce back, and I think baseball is going to do that in 2018. Yeah, and a win over Texas A&M. And in between, know, just, first of all, that's just commonplace at this point, but Great. it doesn't get any less exciting. Or yeah, yeah, it's not even special. Exciting. Yeah, and and in between, could have a really fun basketball oh season gosh, too. Yeah. So this this could be another real banner year for uh, for TCU athletics all year round and and some really marquee opportunities for them to play in the non-conference and to play in some tournaments that, that get lots of eyeballs all yeah, across the absolutely. country on them. Absolutely. Do we want to move around to some storylines around college football? There's really one. There's one yeah, that's been dominating. Yeah, yeah there's, quick there's, hit it maybe. There's one that's been dominating and it is uh, it's a hard situation to talk about. There, It seems like there's just one after the other in college football these days of situations that are well, that's in the true. Big Ten, yeah, at least. that are just frustrating and just kind of head scratchers. When you have now at Maryland, uh, two separate investigations happening. One investigation happening into the death of a player, Jordan McNair, who collapsed uh, due to an extreme heat stroke in late May during spring practice, and then passed away about 15 days later in June. Um, so the university is investigating uh, his death there. And then they are also running a separate investigation into DJ Durkin, the head coach of Maryland, uh, and the way that he runs that program. Uh, the strength and conditioning coach has already resigned because of uh, some of the things that have been coming out about him. Folks that have played for Durkin at other schools are starting to come out and talk about some of his less than savory uh, strategies for motivating players and getting guys to play while hurt. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's one of those situations where you have to ask yourself again, like, what are you willing to overlook as an administration or as a fan base or whatever it might be uh, to see a program work its way back to relevance? Because we saw what happened at Baylor. We saw ultimately um, how Penn State's, uh, you know, blue chip status fell apart because of something like something so tragic. We've seen now. Uh, at Ohio State, how that can just, the rug can be pulled out from under you so quickly. Uh, and now at Maryland, where they were, they have been awful. Sure, they beat Texas last year, but, you know, they hung 50 on Texas in Austin. Never forget that. But 
Never you know, forget. realistically, like Maryland isn't a premier football program, and this is this is something that, like, this is one of those things where if you don't know as an administration that it's happening, if you don't know that these coaches are equipped, uh, or, or if you don't know that these coaches are not equipped to be able to identify when a player is suffering from a heat stroke, uh, and and be able to take the appropriate actions to take care of that player, then what are we? What are they really doing? employed by that university in the first place. I mean, that's a power five school. They make a ton of money on football. And how are you going to let that happen? Like how, how can people really just sit there and let this kind of stuff happen? I don't understand it. It's frustrating. And especially in the, in the wake of a child dying um, because of these, because of this negligence. Um, it's just a really tragic situation all of, all the way around at Maryland. Well, and, and I'll make two points. To this is number one, that every other situation that you mentioned was about how programs responded to their students making extraordinarily poor choices. Maryland was about what they did to the kids being entrusted to their care. And to me, that makes it, um, it's, I don't want to say it's worse because there have been lives, you know, negatively impacted up and down college football for various reasons. But when you walk into somebody's home and you sit down in front of a parent, or your two parents or a sibling or whoever else. And you say, trust me with your child. I'm going to do what's best for them. And then you so clearly do yeah. not. Uh, that is the worst kind of uh, manipulation and the most disgusting behavior that you're going to see out of an adult in a situation. Um, the cover-ups are, are awful in their own right. I'm not saying that this is worse than that. It's, it's different in my book, but the thought of these coaches, a DJ Durkin and, and whoever else sitting down in front of these parents and saying, I'm going to take care of your son and then running him to the point. This, this wasn't, you know, a, 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 a heart issue. This wasn't something that was not prevented or had not been caught. This was just pure and utter negligence. And we know that because Maryland fully admitted responsibility mm -hmm. for it, yeah. I think, today. So this isn't, these are not, this is not conjecture. This is not innocent until proven guilty. No, this is a football program killed a player yeah. with their negligence. And that is what is going, if, if football ever goes away, you know, between the CTE and the, and the concussions and the injuries, this is the difference is it's that, that culture of masculinity and of playing hurt and of playing through pain and not being able to admit when there's something wrong and coaches making this a part of their program from the very top down like that, that is a very troubling thing that if I'm a parent, <laughs> you you just have to start looking at these things differently. Like, yeah, it might be an outlet and opportunity, but at the same token, like you should not be going to college thinking that I'm going to die because my football coaches care more about winning than they do about making sure I'm okay. And it, it's a horrifying situation. Um, you know, I, I feel for the family, more than anything, you know, obviously, like I can't imagine what that has got to feel like in the tragedy. Um, I hope that the fan base at, at Maryland and college football fans across the country realize that this is not about wins and losses or, or, you know, whatever else. But at the end of the day, like the number one responsibility that you have to these student athletes is to get them through your program in a better place than where they start. And he completely and utterly and failed you know, in that regard. Biggest, one of the other, yeah. The, the thing that also kind of is staggering to me is the fact that, you know, yesterday, Tuesday, Will Muschamp was asked about player safety and was asked about, yeah, 
was asked about um, knowing how to push players without hurting them or harm causing, you know, significant harm. Um, and, and there is a difference, I think, in playing injured and playing hurt. Um, but he sure. decided to answer that question by defending DJ Durkin um, by trying to discredit his, to quote him, anonymous sources. Um, he didn't mention McNair one single time. He didn't acknowledge that a, a person died uh, because of the things that Durkin um, employed, the methods that Durkin employed as a head coach or the things that he allowed to go on in the midst of his program. Um, all uh, Muschamp decided to do was defend Durkin and say things like, I know what kind of man he is and I know what kind of person he is. I talked to him this morning and I don't think it's right. Next question. And so, you know, you've got at this point now, and, and we saw this with uh, guys defending Zach Smith and guys defending Urban Meyer. We've seen it now with, you know, Muschamp defending uh, Durkin. We saw it in Baylor with people coming and defending Art Bryles. We saw it in uh, State College when people were trying to defend Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky. We saw it in Michigan when... Uh, people were trying to defend um, uh, Larry Nasser. Like we've seen this now time and time and time again, where instead of focusing on the victims of the issue at hand, instead of focusing on the people who were actually physically, mentally, emotionally harmed by what had been done to them and around them, uh, we are seeing people who are defending not only the people who perpetrated these crimes, but the people who allowed the people to perpetrate these crimes and ultimately, we're seeing people defend a toxic culture in college football and in college athletics across the board that is unhealthy for the young people in those athletic programs and the people that are supporting those athletic programs. And so realistically now, when we start to see issues like this crop up time and time and time again, it's screaming out that this is a culture issue. This isn't just a coach issue. This isn't just a single mm -hmm. person doing something wrong. This is the fact that DJ Durkin is being defended by a former colleague, by a current colleague, even though he is one of the main reasons that a kid is now dead. His practices killed a kid. His allowing someone to push a kid beyond what they were physically capable of to the point of death is the focus of this story, or should be the focus of this story. Not the fact that, uh, oh, well, he's a good husband and father. I'm sure he is. He's not running his wife out there making her do wind sprints until her body temperature is 106 degrees yeah. and she can't breathe or see. But that's what he did to Jordan McNair. You know, and so I'm getting really tired of hearing all of these stories. I'm getting really tired of talking about them, but I feel like I have to. Because as long as we keep talking about them, we keep being able to say something is not right and we have to do something about it. And it seems like it's a huge problem. Because it is. It absolutely is. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And you're right. It's a, it's a culture problem. This isn't a Maryland program problem. It's not a Baylor problem. It's it's not, you know, Stanford yeah. had issues with their swimming team. It, it's not any of these schools' problem. It is a culture problem with athletics at the highest levels. And it, it carries over into the pro games as well. Um, at the end of the day, people put the this – this aura around these programs and this nostalgia and this pride and being associated with something, even if it just means wearing a t-shirt of it yeah. 
of your favorite team, whether that's your, your college or your, your, your pro team. All we are is paying customers of these mm-hmm. things. And yet we put our entire self-worth in the success or the failure within that. And at the end of the day, it needs to be about people, not about programs and not about wins and losses and not about sports. It is, I, there is few things I love more in the fall than going out on Saturdays and cheering on TCU. But God forbid something like this were to go down in my program and in, in this program that I would try to defend the people mm-hmm. that instigated it. Um, everyone makes mistakes. Coaches are humans too. And sometimes they do them in what they think is, is what's best for the majority. And sometimes they do them because they think it's what's best for them. Sometimes they do it because of the pressure around them to win and be successful. There's all kinds of reasons. And, and some of these people are really good people who made really bad decisions. But at the end of the day, no one person, no one, no one record is bigger than any one individual. And our job is, is fans and as supporters of our universities or pro teams or whatever else is to put our money where our mouth is and say that you need to do things the right way or we're not going to show up. And that's not going to happen because it is a, mm-hmm. a cultish culture, especially around college football. And, and that's, that's something that, you can start addressing with what recruiting has become. I mean, I've, I've spoken on this oftentimes is that I think that this, this problem starts when we start offering eighth graders. And when these kids are, are tweeting out, you know, every offer from the time they're 14 years old and they're getting a thousand responses and they're getting all of these adults diving into their social media, obsessing over the decisions of 15, 16, 17 year old mm-hmm. kids. That's where it starts because then you start to make these kids feel more important and, and that they're special and they're different because of they're good at something. And it, we don't do that for right. cellists. You know, we don't do that for valedictorians. We do it for college football players and college basketball players. And, and you give this inflated sense of, of self-worth to where you think you're above everything else. And, and we see schools passing these kids along. Uh, we see, you know, high schools worshiping these athletes that go and celebrating them as, as the, their number one achievements. And, and that's where the problem starts is that they, they are gifted and they are special and we can cheer for them and we can, we can love them. But just because that's their gift doesn't mean that their gift is any more oh, important absolutely. than anybody else's. They're kids. They're kids. And we need to treat them like kids, not like saviors, because at the end of the day, they need to be held accountable just like any of the rest they of us. They need to be do. held accountable. They also need to be, uh, I think educated in a way that allows them to recognize that they do have significant abilities that most people don't have while also recognizing that mm-hmm. that does not entitle them to any sort of status like that has to still be earned but realistically like you just said it doesn't Absolutely. have to be earned right now um and and no you know that is definitely a part of the culture issue but i think the larger part of the culture issue is that the grown men mostly men who are coaching these kids are the ones who are instilling this sense of entitlement. Um, and I, and, and they're also pushing these kids to do things to their bodies that are detrimental in the long run. Uh, you know, I don't know if Jordan, I don't know enough about Jordan McNair to know that if he was talented enough, um, to go to the NFL or not. But what I do know is that if your coach is pushing you to do something that your body is physically not capable of doing, uh, they're putting you in danger and it's for no good of your own. Ultimately it's because they want to keep their job. Um, and I feel like I'm starting to get a little rambly, so I'm going to cut that short. 
This has already been a long podcast, but well, I, I do want to make yeah, I do want to make one point where I disagree with you in that. I think that the problem isn't that these coaches are instilling that sense of entitlement. I think it's that they're trying so hard to break it down from the moment that they step on campus that that's why some of these workouts get tougher. It's, it's, it's that mix of we are going to build you up and fill your ego and tell you how much we need you and pursue the heck out of you. And the minute that you sign, now we have to make you be a team player again. And and I think that's where some of the these ridiculous workouts, they don't make them better football players. I don't think anybody would argue that these workouts make them better football players. What they're trying to do is build community and give them a common goal and give them a con- common enemy in some instances too. And, you know, someone who's, who's coached for 20 plus years, like a lot of times you, you do things that make your team like you less in order to make them rely on each other more. And I think a lot, that's a lot of what we're seeing in college football too. But you're right. We have spoken a long time on this. It has nothing to do with TCU. Hopefully it'll be a conversation we never have to have One around anything TCU related. Because if we're having this conversation, yeah. then something's gone tragically wrong. But you yes. know what? Next week, hopefully will be a better week just in the, in the life of, of TCU fans because of the Ross Blacklock injury and, because, and college football fans, because maybe there will be some resolutions to the Maryland situation. Maybe there will be some resolutions to the Ohio State situation. Um, hopefully one can only hope, but, uh, that is going to pretty much do it for this episode of the Frogs War podcast. Uh, as always, please subscribe on iTunes to the podcast channel, Frogs War by Frogs War, and take a few seconds to leave us a review, whether it's five stars or four stars or three stars, or, I mean, even if you really need to leave us a one-star review because you thought that we were so dumb when we were talking about Maryland, or so dumb when we were talking about whatever else we talked about on this podcast. I can't even remember at this point, but if you thought that we were done, yeah. Oh, this We've is been doing a podcast? Second. okay. Well, whoops, but leave <laughs> us a review. It really does help other people find the podcast on iTunes. It helps people find the podcast on Podbean and wherever podcasts are broadcast. Hey, and uh, you know, and so it really, it, it would help us out a lot. We do appreciate every time that people listen. We do, we do appreciate every time that you guys comment and interact and, and chat and send us questions. Uh, so keep sending us questions, keep interacting. That's why we do this is to interact with y'all, uh, and to try and, and help connect people a little bit closer to TCU athletics and in the goings on of things all around the kind of the collegiate, uh, athletics landscape. So this is fun to do this, but we would love for you to interact with us in that way. And that's going to do it because I've said that's going to do it us uh, like four or five times now. And I mean it this time. I am Jamie Plunkett. And this has been the Frogs World I'm Podcast. I'm also Good night and go Frogs. And this has been the Frogs World Podcast. Sir. Good night and go Frogs. <laughs> <laughs>